0: Just pray for Karen now. Father, we pray that Karen may be hidden and that you may be seen. We pray that our hearts may be ready to receive the word which you have for us today and that we may go away changed people as a result. Amen. Amen. Well, we already have heard and understand that today is Palm Sunday. And we're going to be considering this morning Jesus' final few days for the crucifixion. So what I'd like to do this morning is first of all imagine the triumphal entry a bit more. We've already had a really good illustration this morning, haven't we, with the children going around the church. Um, We're going to discover actually what happened between those two passages because that will help us understand why Jesus told that parable. Then we'll dissect the parable and then finally consider how that applies to each one of us. So, I've got a picture here. Um, you heard from the passage in Mark, that, um, which I think is very familiar to us, that Jesus and the disciples, they're actually on their way from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem, and that they were staying in Bethany. And so it was the Sunday, they're looking out here, over, you can see the temple, um, Pete, Jesus is looking out there, and he may have been at this point actually saying to the disciples to go down and collect the colt. Uh, thank you for that illustration, Tom. <laughs> Um, So I think this is quite helpful. Um, He was staying in, as I say, Bethany and Bethphage, and they were just outside, about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. Um, He knew that area very well because Bethany was where uh, Mary Martha and Lazarus lived. And it's perhaps a question we can still ponder. Did he actually know that there would be a cult there, or was it divine inspiration that he knew that that uh, cult would be waiting for him? but well, let's have a quick look at a map to try and put this into perspective I think you can see there the villages of Bethany and Bethphage the Mount of Olives and then uh, to the left of that the Temple Mount and so this road is about a mile and a half and they have gone down this road to go into the temple um, just look at this next map. just got a bit of information added. I don't know if you can read that. But when you prepare for a sermon, you learn a lot. And I learned so much, and I want to share so much with you. So, a little note here, actually. Have you ever wondered why so many places in the Bible start with the word Beth? We've got Bethphage, Bethany, Bethlehem. So it just means house of. So Bethany is otherwise known as the house of dates or the house of misery on account of the fact it was apparently a very lonely place. I don't think many people lived there. And it was a place where invalids congregated. So you can imagine why Jesus went there as well on his way, on his journeys. And the others up there also, Bethlehem, house of bread and others. Anyway, so we hear the disciples, they bring the cult to Jesus, and then he rides into Jerusalem. So his uh, representation, I think that might have been from the, the, the film The Messiah. And as he's received then, and again, we've all heard this morning, all the crowds were rejoicing, they were triumphant as he went in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that scripture ended very abruptly, didn't it? He looked around the temple, it was late in the afternoon. He went back to Bethany. Bit of an anti-climax, I think. Um, let's just have a quick look at another artist impression um, of what Jerusalem might have looked like at that time. And again, this picture, I think, is taken from a very similar point to the last one. But it was a very desolate area. At that time of the year there were about 10 hours of daylight each day and the sun was probably setting about 6.30 and he knew he had to get back to Bethany and we're imagining he might have stayed with Mary and Martha um, whilst he was there. So it made sense that he did go back before it got too dark. So he's gone back to Bethany. What happens next? Why did he tell that parable? So the next day, Monday morning, Here's a little map showing his travels. He's in Bethany on the first day, the triumphal entry goes back to Bethany. That's the Mark reading from chapter eleven. The next day is Monday, he goes into the temple again, and this is another scripture you probably are very familiar with. He turns over the temple the tables in the temple. Being that it's the week of Passover, the Jews from all around the Roman Roman, um, Empire had come into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. They would have to change their currency into currency for the temple tax, and there would be merchants in there selling all sorts of wares um, for them to buy, much like going on a a tourist trip to any other city in the world where you might end up being um, touted to by people trying to sell you their wares. Jesus is infuriated by this. He goes in and sees this happening. And so he says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a place of prayer for all nations, and you've turned into a den of thieves. So he's really angry, righteous anger. I've just had a little um, picture there of a fig tree, just to mention that actually he was going in. He'd had, his day hadn't started too well, to be honest. He, would for some reason, cursed a fig tree. And I do encourage you to read the scripture that comes between these two passages so you understand uh, what actually happened over those two days. But in turning over the tables in the temple, it hadn't gone unnoticed by the, the religious leaders, the priests and the teachers. And they began to plot how they were going to kill Jesus. And so, Jesus leaves the temple again, goes back to Bethany. And so, the next day is Tuesday, and we come to the next scripture. The priests, having started to plot, were waiting for him. They go straight to Jesus, and they challenge him. Who gave you authority? Who gave you authority to do that? And so, as a response... Jesus tells this parable. In telling this parable, though, Jesus is actually directly referring to a scripture from Isaiah in the Old Testament, a scripture that these priests and teachers would have obviously known really, really well. So just have a look at that um, piece of scripture from Isaiah. It's actually called the Song of Vineyard, or that's the title that's been appended to it. And it starts, I will sing for the one I love a song about a vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard. On a fertile hillside, he dug it up and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And so it goes on. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I had done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And we're just going to jump to the last uh, verse. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So they would have known this scripture really well and knew straight away that Jesus was actually pointing a finger at them. So just to give you a kind of a photographic picture, this is the remains of a watchtower over a vineyard. I'm not sure the vineyard's still operating, but that just gives you an idea what the watchtower and the walls might have looked like. Okay, let's break down that parable and then really understand what is he saying to the the priests. A man planted a vineyard. Who is the man? God is the man that he's referring to. And the vineyard, that is Israel. To these Jewish leaders, he knows, they know what he's talking about. To us, it's really the kingdom of heaven. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. So God provided all the provisions. He planted the vines. He gave them protection. And so he does for us. And so he did for the Jewish leaders and all of the followers. He rented the vineyard to some farmers or tenants, and he moved to another place. So God left Israel in charge of the, or the leaders and priests in charge of Israel. They just had to look after it. God provided Israel, He gave Palestine to His chosen people, He had protected them from and driven out enemies. If we look through the Old Testament, we see that again and again. He'd entrusted his people to leaders who, if they'd been faithful, would have produced a bountiful harvest. Israel should have been a light to the nations, pointing them to God, who had given them all they needed. And then we hear at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. God expects us to produce fruit. He was very fair. He gave plenty of time in the story to actually produce the harvest. And he sent along his servants to collect the share that was owed to him. So by servant, he's referring to the prophets and faithful priests that had gone before. But we hear that that the tenants, they seized them, they beat them and sent them away empty-handed. He sent another servant to them they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. God gave them many chances, and so He gives us many chances. It's not at all like the real world, is it, this story? Can you imagine a businessman of today, if it was a vineyard he was managing? I don't think he'd have tolerated this happening. He'd have got rid of the the tenants straight away and brought in new. But God is such a gracious God and gives us many chances. And then we move on to towards the end. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son, who is a son, Clearly, this is referring to Jesus. Jesus knows about their plan to kill him, and he's being very open about it. But by telling this parable in this way, he's probably going to get more traction with them than if he'd actually just directly accused them. He's giving them time to understand this themselves. Jesus knew he'd be rejected. The story demonstrates God's amazing love and yet the potential of the human heart to to do such selfish acts the father's love is so great he was willing to send his only beloved son and even after the servants had been so abused then the tenants said to one another this is the heir come let's kill him and the inheritance, inheritance will be ours so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard note the word heir when the son showed up the tenant farmers assumed that the owner was dead under Jewish law property not claimed by an heir within a specific time could be claimed by the first party to do so they may have greedily assumed then if they got rid of the son the property would become theirs they wanted his inheritance for themselves and so it was with the Jewish leaders and priests. They didn't want to submit themselves to God or His or the rightful ownership. They wanted to rule Israel, abiding by their traditions and their rigid laws and their hardened hearts. So Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And by that, he's referring to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the others. Haven't you read the scripture, he says to them directly? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We sung about that, didn't we, just now? Jesus Christ, cornerstone through the storm, he's our Lord, Lord of all, but clearly not to the Jewish priests. And in referring to Jesus as the cornerstone, He's actually referring to a psalm, another Old Testament scripture that they would have known well. It's all too clear to the priests what Jesus is saying to them. And so, finally, verse 12. Then the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. I'm sure we can all point the finger at others who we might think live their lives like this. You don't have to look far on the internet to discover church or Christian ministers who have actually pocketed themselves personally and got wealth of millions and millions of pounds in serving uh, the church by Christian ministry. And it's not for me to point a finger at them, because in fact Jesus said to us, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you will judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you see... It will be measured to you. So let's not point fingers at other people. Let's have a look at our own lives. At the end of the day, we are all tenants in God's vineyard. We're all called to be motivated by his love for us. So as we continue to reflect over this last week in Lent, let's consider about Jesus' sacrifice for us and consider how we respond to the parable. I must admit that it wasn't really till this morning when actually, because I did the 9 o'clock sermon as well, I came in and thought, oh, why did I say I'd do this? It's not been easy for me, to be honest with you. It's quite short notice. But God said, actually, if you'd said no, how much better would you have been than the tenants? You are responding to God's call for me on my life, and he's called me to do this this morning. So I'm glad I said yes, no matter how difficult it was. We are very privileged that God has given his word to us and he's given us everything that we need to pertain in our lives to our life and our godliness. God's great love sent to us in the form of Jesus Christ should be enough to to lead us and motivate us to live accountably to him. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to live Christ-like lives so that people who don't know him will wonder what makes us different and they will want to know Jesus too. So, the question, do we recognise the provision and generosity of God to us? Are we living our lives for ourselves and our own gratification, or are we living to bear fruit for Jesus? Are we labouring for what we can get out of the vineyard, or what we can produce for the owner? And secondly, do we rejoice then triumphantly, or... Do we actually reject Jesus for our own priorities? And in this parable, we see that the the farmer or the landowner, he didn't actually ask for everything. He didn't take the whole crop. He just asked for some. Have we, like the priests and teachers, created our own set of rules about what we can give back to God? I know, certainly in my own life, there have been many times reflecting back that I've been self-centred, living for my own aims, not necessarily thinking about bearing fruit for God. And slowly that truth has been dawning on me. But he keeps on sending messengers, as I'm sure he does to you, to keep me on track. So let's just reflect for a moment about whether we respond to the parable triumphantly, rejoicing like the crowds did when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Or do we in fact reject him for our own priorities? Amen.